I remember that moment that in that case there were 22 sets of eyes just staring at me and they all said the same thing what do we do now boss and that was the that's when the penny dropped for me that uh, this is what leadership is about Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. My guest on today's show has had an aviation career little kids dream about. Rob Scratch Mitchell's 20-year career in the Royal Canadian Air Force is highlighted by his time as a CF-18 demo pilot, and two tours with the Snowbirds, including his team leader. Performing at air shows sparked his interest in acting and film, and eventually it became his calling. Since leaving the Air Force, he has combined his passion for aviation with the world of producing, directing, and acting for film and television. On this episode, we talk about some tough lessons in leadership, what GA pilots can learn from the military, and how his Air Force experience lends itself well to the film world. And be sure to stick around to the end. You won't want to miss his spider story and what the G-load limits are on a tarantula. Plus, I'll share where you can listen to a special bonus episode where Scratch answers some of your listener questions. So here we go. Episode 4 with Rob Scratch Mitchell. Thanks for joining me. Hey, my and, pleasure. Yeah. Um, I always like to start off with just getting people to tell their journey into aviation. You're a third generation fighter pilot, so you come from a family of uh, aviators. Yes, well, that's, uh, I sort of grew up with it in my blood. I, you know, I was a kid, uh, well, my dad was in the Air Force when I was born, and I, I just grew up around the Air Force as an Air Force brat on base and whatnot, so it was really instilled in me it wasn't until i was probably five or six that i came to realize that my grandfather was also a fighter pilot and in the war in world war ii as a spitfire pilot and more and more grandfather would tell me stories as a child about his times and so from my grandfather and my father and me witnessing my father fly firsthand it was pretty much immutable in my life and um I've read some old interviews that you've done and like any teenager, you kind of rebelled against that path, that chosen path. Um, but you came, you came right out of high school, basically and went to the Air Force, didn't you? Well, almost. I, I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot from early age. I built RC models. I, I did a ton of different things about aviation. I used to make, you know, airplanes out of plywood with the jigsaw everything was aviation as I grew up and I really liked it in the Star Wars I was you know that inspired me I wanted to fly someday I wanted to fly in canyons and I knew that the only way to do that was in a in a jet and so I was very motivated even at a young age to for a number of reasons to become a fighter pilot the as I hit my mid-teens I think I naturally had that resistance to the father figure as I'm trying to find my place in in the world. And and sure enough, I have a 15-year-old son right now who's giving me a bit of pushback. So I find it very amusing that it, it does circle around, actually. And uh, I, 
I, I remember actually telling my father that uh, I don't know about being a, a pilot. I think, uh, you know, that might be the easy way out, which was kind of silly to say that, maybe a bit hurtful at the time. And I, I actually went to university for a couple of years uh, to figure it out. But it really, after six months in or the first semester at the University of Victoria, I realized, no, 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 I, I need to fly airplanes. And, and then I, from that point on, I worked towards joining the Air Force ultimately finished my degree once I joined the Air Force, but it, it so it took about a year and a half the whole, to go through the whole process, but I was very committed at that point to uh, to making that work. And did you go into that with some goals? Did, did you always want to be a snowboard pilot? Um, tell, tell us how your, your career arc kind of went. I knew joining that I had to be a fighter pilot. That was my first priority. I just, I was going to commit every piece of my body and soul and energy into that and I was going to accept nothing less that was my primary goal joining the Air Force and I remember being um, uh, gosh I was 17 or 18 the F-18s were pretty new and I, my dad brought me on the base in Winnipeg and I saw two or three F-18s pull up and to me they look like spaceships because in in the in the 80s that that was pretty new technology and i was like wow that is that is 100 what i need to fly and i i would accept nothing less in interestingly in as it relates to the snowbirds in basic training i did uh one of my public speaking sessions about why we should disband the snowbirds <laughs> because uh, they were looking for something topical and the Ramstein crash had just occurred if you recall oh, that yeah. in the yeah. late 80s and that was a horrific event and I, I just thought well I'll be a little provocative here and I'll talk about air shows and should we keep the snowbirds and the cost versus the the risk and whatnot and so my first public speaking event in the in the Air Force was about disbanding the snowbirds, which kind of falls in the face of everything that I've done, you know, having <laughs> served on the snowbirds now twice. <laughs> so irony is awesome. Yeah. So you had a 20-year career in the Air Force. Um, you achieved those goals. You flew the CF-18, you flew the snowbirds for two tours, including as the leader. I want to talk a little bit about the snowbirds because um, mm. it's kind of a Canadian icon like I remember as a kid, before the CBC would air in the morning, there'd be the they'd play the national anthem, and the the part I remember obviously is the Snowbirds, because I was a plain nut as well. Um, what was it like getting accepted onto that team and joining that team, and what's what's it like as a new member of that team joining that organization? Well, I, before I get to that, I have to uh, agree with you. I remember that Snowbird scene in the in. On CBC or whatnot and I remember watching that and I also remember going to the movie theaters as a teen and there was a little five-minute uh, preamble that they played before some movies it was a sort of a mini documentary or an excerpt from a documentary in the 80s about the snowbirds and I remember watching that and going wow that's pretty cool so the snowbirds after I was a fighter pilot so I had done one complete tour in an operational squadron in Bagotville at 433 squadron and then I was sent reluctantly and kicking and screaming I was sent to be an instructor at 410 Squadron in Cold Lake 
and uh, it was probably after about two months I realized that I absolutely loved instructing. But one of the perks of being an instructor at 410 Squadron is that's where the demo pilot for the F-18 came from. And so I wanted to be an F-18 airshow pilot and I was selected for the 1999 airshow season and I was, gosh, I was just a you know, kid looking back at 28 turning 29 years old and I fell in love with airshow flying at that time. And interestingly, you know, looking back on my life and what motivated me to become an airshow pilot so much is there's actually been an inherent performer in me all this time. As much as I'm a, a fangs out fighter pilot, horns and fangs, and I love being a fighter pilot, I still love flying old fighter jets and what have you. But I couldn't deny the fact that there was a performer in me and I really was energized by being the F-18 airshow pilot and coming down after performing in front of tens and hundreds of thousands of people and being able to interact with the crowd and just sharing that experience, but also getting some very personal satisfaction out of it. And so it wasn't, um, it wasn't even a leap for me. I, I put my application in to be on the Snowbirds. Which is an interesting experience because like anything, unlike anything else in the Air Force, in the Snowbirds, you're competing against peers. You're not competing against a course syllabus or a, or a minimum level. And so you could, in, as was the case in my year, we actually had several strong candidates go through, but only three of us were going to be picked on the team out of the six of us trying out as it was uh, weeded down into the uh, sort of the final six that we're going to officially try out. And so that was very challenging. Actually, it was a very stressful few weeks. Um, and I think part of that, a big part of that is the stress that one puts on themselves. I certainly did because you throw your reputation on the line to go into the snowbirds and having just been the F-18 demo pilot, everyone was saying, oh, it's a shoe in for you. You're an airshow pilot already and you're an, you're a fighter pilot and you've done very well. I was very fortunate. I, I did well in my courses. I was near the top or the top of most of my flying courses. And uh, the pressure, even from my peers, was quite strong and then put my own pressure on. So I actually found it quite quite stressful. And of course, it was uh, the lead at the time, uh, Cowboy, uh, rest in peace, he he um, played tricks on us. And so on that selection day, he actually sat you down and debriefed you like you didn't make it. And at the end of it, he said, so we're very sorry that you weren't able to be selected on the team this year. And then let the, let the blood flow through from my head. And then he goes, I'm just kidding. Congratulations. Welcome to the team. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I just about fell over dead. <laughs> so I couldn't take it. Yeah. And then uh, then started that amazing journey of being on the Snowbirds. Uh, the first time being a wingman, joining a team with such such amazing uh, camaraderie, such amazing bond of you know truly life and death kind of bond because you're flying four feet from each other and and doing preposterous things in airplanes, and so that was really really rewarding. Um, what's the buildup like that when you? Every year they obviously build a build a show and you've got new people joining the team. What do those first months look like? How do you get somebody who's coming from um, an operational squadron, say, into that kind of a different form of flying? It is a different form of, fly, of flying. And I think the, the big difference is that you deconstruct the entire squadron every year and you start anew because 
the snowbirds, you fly to the lowest common denominator. And as a new candidate just selected, in my case, three of us, the we knew nothing of airshow flying in the snowbirds environment. I knew how to be an airshow pilot with an F-18. I knew how to miss the ground and I knew the, the, the airshow box. I knew the cues to being a low-level aerobatic pilot. But the intricacies of being a high-performance multi-plane formation team, that was completely foreign to me. And just your basic formation flying training that we received in the military was obviously a, a, a starting point for that, but that really only brings you about 10% of the way of what you need to know to be a snowbird pilot. So the whole team basically deconstructs and starts brand new. And we would go out in two or three airplanes at a time. We'd work weeks just doing that. We'd be doubled up with our training partner. So in a typical year, you would, I was a number seven when I first joined an outer left. And so the outer right wing, who was actually a good buddy of mine, we would fly together most of the time. And he would go on his side of the formation on his side and demonstrate a maneuver. And then we would go on the other side of the, of the lead airplane. And then I would try it. And you would just slowly build that up and then you would add different airplanes. And of course, the other guys on the, that had just been selected, they were doubled up with their training partner. And sometimes we were two airplanes. Sometimes we would get all four, three new candidates and, and the lead. And then over the months, you would slowly add airplanes and complexity to the maneuvers. One of the big goals was always, can you loop the nine plane everyone solo before Christmas? And that was a that was a big milestone, and a very I remember that day very well. You just came down, and you feel not you're on top of the world, because you have those moments where you're like, I've watched the snowbirds for years and years and years, and wondered what it was like, and then you get so busy with the actual mission yourself at the bottom of the loop, and everyone spreads out to debrief it, and you realize, I just did a loop with nine jets by myself in the cockpit, and this is something I, as a child, I. I watched many times and you go, that's a pretty awesome feeling. Awesome. And then, um, so fast forward a couple of years and you rejoin the snowbirds as the team lead. Um, so that's a whole new level of responsibility. And, um, did you feel ready for that or, um, was it something you went in with some trepidation? I, it's an interesting question because I left the snowbirds, uh, having flown four airshow seasons in a row and effectively you're gone six months of the year for each airshow season and I was recently married when I joined the snowbirds so it was it was it was, it was very difficult uh, for it's very difficult for family life it's a it's a, a sacrifice for sure for the family and and even for the members to be gone that much and so at the end of those four seasons I was I was done with airshow flying for the time being but I knew leaving the team that I wanted to come back and be the lead of the team as well. I knew, I knew that. I just knew that I needed to separate that by a few years, which is a prerogative anyways. You have to go do some uh, flying management and um, be a leader on you know your respective squadrons and whatnot before you could come back and lead the squadron and the team. I, I think I wanted it so much that I felt ready, but I knew that there was that the weight of don't mess this up because <laughs> right. it's uh, you are the point person for the national icon snowbirds and so there's there's quite a bit of gravity to that and I knew that but I, I think I wanted it so much and I you know I like to think I did well as a wingman on the team 
the flying aspect of it and I, I trusted my own flying uh, that I, I knew I could do it intrinsically I knew I could do it in in my heart it just naturally there's the that the weight and the gravity of the role sometimes you'd be like oh boy what am I doing I was a pretty young guy too I was only 36 37 when I came back as as a lead which presented interesting challenges because in sort of the demographic change over the years with the snowbirds in in the 80s the average age of the the wingmen on the snowbirds were was in the you know the mid to late 20s and when I joined I was 29 turning 30 and I was the average age so over the years the ages bumped up when I came back at 37 let's say in my first year leading I was also the average age of the team and so many of the wingmen were my peers and contemporaries and I just had the privilege of you know um, getting that position at that point in my career and so it was an interesting time to be both you know, working with your peers but being the the boss effectively and unfortunately pretty early on you your leadership was put to the test wasn't it well it was and uh, I can say this emphatically that the being the lead on the snowbirds was the absolute highlight of my career uh, hands down okay it was so rewarding and also was one of the biggest uh, challenges and and in a heartbreaking way because I had a, a fatal crash on my watch effectively right out of the gates it was the, a practice before our very first public show and what a way to start the season and it was an interesting challenge because we you know I was on a on in the honeymoon of this position uh, a new lead we had just come out of uh, our selections for our next year's team we had just come out of our training camp in in Comox which had gone well the team was doing well and we went down to Great Falls to fly their air show down there and on our practice day um, you know we had a fatal accident right out of the gates there was a you know a mechanical failure with the with the seat the ejection seat uh, lap belt and and we lost uh, you know a good friend and uh, you know a team member you know my wingman that was right beside me that I've been mentoring and coaching and I was like, man, oh man, like this to go from such a high to such a low in a matter of, you know, minutes, really, um, and seconds, it, uh, it was very confronting. And, and as you say, as a leadership challenge, I learned that day what, that talk is cheap when it comes to leadership. I uh, like all of us when we're on squadron or a captain or a major and there's, there's superiors above you. We, especially as A-type fighter pilots, we we don't hide our opinions about things. And we're like, oh, I would have done that. I think the, the boss should have done this. But I'll tell you, when you're at the helm and something goes wrong, it's very interesting. And it, it's if I can share this experience, because it's a, it's a very palpable one for me. After that accident, in in we were in Airborne, and very quickly we terminated, we knocked off the, the practice and I quickly started grouping the pilots together who were natural because we were all sp spread up into different groups. The solos were off, they, we were doing different maneuvers. And so I directed the pilots to go land in their natural clusterings that they were in. And obviously we land, we took off with nine airplanes, we landed with eight and after every flight, whether it's a travel uh, practice, uh, 
a show or a transit flight, we would always meet at the number five jet. And that's, uh, we would just do, a, we call it an overwing. So we would, we would group around the wing and we would just quickly go through any safeties just before we go talk to the crowd or we talk to the media. Well, I said, let's do the same thing. I want all the ground crew and all the pilots to go meet at the number five jet. I'll land. I was going to be one of the last ones to land. And uh, we'll just do a quick assessment of what's going on here. And of course we land and there's, you know, there's the base commander down there. There's the air show people, a whole bunch of people swarm my airplane. There was a general there, a US, a USAF general. And I remember saying to them, ladies and gentlemen, sir, I, I need to go talk to my team right away. I will be right back because that was the first priority. And I remember distinctly walking up to that number five jet and I had you know, 100, 100 meters to walk to the, the group of the team that were assembled at the, the wing. And I, I remember that moment that in that case, there were 22 sets of eyes just staring at me and they all said the same thing what do we do now boss and that was the that's when the penny dropped for me that uh this is what leadership is about it's about when it's when called upon you need to be able to step up and and answer the call and uh i like to think that i did but um it was a very interesting and and powerful moment for me yeah i bet um so thinking about military flying and sort of the, the discipline and precision involved in that, um, how is that taught and fostered in the military and how can we as pilots in general, general aviation or whatever, take, take away some elements of that to improve our flying? Well, I, th I think I've, I've been able to witness uh, not only military flying and civilian flying, uh, I did a short stint as an airline pilot before I got into film, but also I've been a, an active airshow pilot as a civilian performer in various uh, aircraft. And so I've been able to really consider both sides of it. And there are there's some pros and cons to both sides and, and really they're complementary in many cases. But what I would say is the often the resources that are afforded to the military are uh, required and you know, the type of flying, the risk levels. Uh, outside of airshow flying, which you know, obviously shares uh, a level of risk in that type of high-performance flying. But the the focus that I've seen in my career as a military pilot and fostered on my, on my watches about emergency training and responding to malfunctions is far more rigorous than what I've seen in, in the civilian life. And I think that's something that I, I certainly preach when I'm working with uh, airshow pilots and or civilian airshow pilots and uh, get the odd opportunity to speak to uh, aviation communities and whatnot. I really do reinforce that that aspect of things is that it's the drills over and over again. It's just so you know your airplane so intimately and you know the responses so so perfectly that in those moments of crisis that you're going to respond in the right way. That's, that's one thing I definitely have taken away from the military side of it is that preparedness for when things go wrong. I think far too often the human tendency is to plan for when things go right and we get accustomed to things going right and uh, when things go wrong, uh, maybe we're not as prepared for that. And I think uh, we, we met 
for the first time recently when you were giving a aerobatics evaluation, and I remember you talking about that about um, like go, go through the routines and throw what ifs at yourself so you get the muscle memory. Um, like if a maneuver's not going right or something's not going right, you instinct instinctively know what to do. Um, I imagine, imagine that's something you do in the military a lot is um, just throwing scenarios at people and having them deal with it. That's exactly right, and that starts right at the at the basic flying training. Is that that sort of modality of learning how to integrate with a with a mechanical device, an airplane in this case, is learning you know, how do you deal with it, how do you prepare for worst case scenarios. It's just a philosophy that I think is greater instilled in in my experience with military flying than it I've experienced with other levels. Of course, the airline flying, there's there are a lot of simulators. But not to the level of the simulator uh, drills and the airborne drills that we would experience in, in in my career. I think that's that's one thing is the the focus on simulation in all my career in military career was was quite exhaustive, and we would had a sort of a mandate that do in the simulator what you can do best: drills and procedures and emergency drills. And then in the airplane, do what you do best, which is refine uh, the flying and, and focus on what you need to focus on in the air. And then almost every mission, even when we're training, I was an F-18 instructor for two tours, um, almost every mission had some sort of malfunction that the student would have to think through. We, we wouldn't often you know, fail something, but we would say, let's, let's consider right now that this this system is giving you a hard time, what would you do? And they would have to sort of go through the checklist. So it, it taught a, an approach to addressing things. In the airshow flying, I don't think, um, you know, speaking about the emergencies is enough. So I'm a big proponent of actually physicalizing the, the emergency response. The top of a loop, you're not happy with your, your gait, your minimum altitude or your maximum airspeed. Uh, rather than just say, well, in that case, I would fly through, I, I encourage and anybody I, I mentor, I make them go up and abort a, abort a loop and actually roll out of it. So they have a physical memory of what that's like after having made the decision. Because the human tendency is to keep the inertia of what was going on in the maneuver and to fly through the loop. And that could lead to a bad decision under the pressure of flying at an air show in front of the public, for example. So I'm a big proponent of physicalizing the uh, the emergency drills. Yeah, you don't want the first time you've done something to be yeah, in a performance. No, with yeah. all the stress of everything that's going on and the pressure to perform. Gosh, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a, a pressure that um, I think is understated. I think it's a, it's a big pressure. And aviation's somewhat unique in that um, sharing stories and like reading accident reports is a thing that people do and you learn from other people's mistakes, hopefully. Um, fighter pilots in the movies and like, there's always mm -hmm. this image of fighter pilots being like cocky and egocentric. And, um, but I know like in the snowbirds, especially, and I'm sure everywhere else, like ego has to be stripped away in debriefs and honesty is super important. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, that is a really important point. I'm glad you mentioned that because they're the type of people that want to fly fighter jets and Air Force, for for example. Um, they're you know strong personalities in a lot of cases, and and to be a fighter pilot, you need that. You need somebody with fangs and horns at times. 
but you also need somebody that understands um, when to use them and when not to, and when to check the ego and when not to. And I think the bravado and the and sort of the antics of being a fighter pilot is part of the part of the fun, part of the game. But that's that's for the mess on Friday night, and the jocularity and the, the camaraderie that comes from that. The once you walk into the briefing room, we used to have an adage on the snowbirds and in the fighter squadron, it's egos and attitudes at the door. Once you step into that room, it's um, you're stripped down to your essence of who you are as an aviator and where you are in your career as an aviator. What do you have to learn? Is this an instructor student relationship or is this a senior fighter pilot teaching a, a, a less experienced fighter pilot? And it really comes down to that and it's extremely professional. And I I think people are surprised when they come into the Snowbirds briefing room when we do invite them in that they realize how humble of an environment it is, uh, both in the briefing and in the debriefing, which are quite, quite uh, curt. There's no room for flowery conversation. It's good points, bad points, ways to improve. It, and it really comes down to that. Here's what you did well today. Here's what you didn't do well today. Here's how we're going to fix it tomorrow. And, and nobody, uh, nobody takes it personally. It's just, no, it's it yeah. just you have to check that ego and uh, the attitude. And a big part of being selected for the Snowbirds, for example, is we test a person's ability to take critique and uh, and self-criticize or self-critique, I should say, not criticize. And, and are they receptive to work in a team environment at the, the most sort of pointy edge of things because the Snowbird flying is is that. Right. Um, so that kind of leads us into my next, the next part of your life and my next series of questions, because, um, at some point you decide that you want to scare yourself and go into a whole new avenue of, um, work and life. And, um, so you went into film and television, you airlines, but then your, your goal was to be in film and television. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Yes. And that did not come lightly uh, the decision I I had done my my staff college I was being groomed for more senior officer position I I was a lieutenant colonel I was told that you know I uh, colonel promotion was uh, imminent and I was going they had mapped out a, a career progression for me that all things being equal I would uh, I would be a general very flattered very flattering and I must admit I got caught up in the Maybe a little bit of the ego of that, that because I can't, ima couldn't imagine being a young, young lieutenant getting in trouble for some low flying that I would ever make it past captain. So the thought <laughs> of being a general was, you know, this wow, really me? Um, and I did enjoy being a senior officer in the Air Force. I really did enjoy commanding the Snowbirds. I did enjoy being an operations officer on a fighter squadron. I also, back to my previous point, that there was a performer in me and there's an entertainer in me that there was uh, a deep calling in me as well. And I even went back to my youth when I look back at different things that I had done and I'm like, yeah, there is something there. I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker. I'd always wanted to be a, a public figure. I, um, you know, short of saying I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be involved in the entertainment industry in, in many ways. And I, I, I looked at sort of life where we were. I was in my late 30s. Um, 
even with that generous offer, they were they were saying that you know to be a general, you're probably going to be posted at least six times in ten years. And we had young kids. I was like, gosh, that's not a fantastic option for raising kids. And we've always wanted to go to the West Coast. I grew up on the West Coast, and so there was a pull that way as well. And I just remember waking up one day, and we were in Australia, and I was I went down in the early morning to catch some waves on a, at Kulangara, one of my favorite places to surf on the earth. And I was sitting there and I'm like, no, I'm going to uh, change my life to get into film and television. I'll find the path to do that. So I, I, I did retire at my 20 year point. And I, I knew that you can't just jump out of the door and, and say, okay, world, I'm here. I want to be a filmmaker and an actor. And there's a path. So I did go to the airlines. I thought it was going to be a five to 10 year process. And I was just fortunate. I partnered with somebody uh, here in town in Vancouver, Mark Miller, um, who had some ideas about doing an air show TV show. I had been interestingly developing an idea with the Patriots jet team that I was recently accepted to be a, a civilian air show pilot with and wanted to make a TV show about that. We met at a conference, started talking about joining forces and the air show TV series that was on discovery channel resulted from that. And that forced my hand. I had to leave the, uh, the airline job. I was with WestJet at the time and then jumped in with all my feet and arms and everything else into the deep end. Um, so I'm kind of curious to explore how the, the leadership, um, lessons you learned in the military and the organizational structures, how you've, you've, brought that across to the film and TV process. You've worked as a like a safety coordinator, an aerial coordinator on some some of the big shows and um, yeah, I'm interested how that how how people see your skills as a benefit to them. Well, it's just a it's interesting you ask that because I'm just working with an organization even now. They're interested in restructuring to address what's going on in the world right now with COVID. And they have all their editors and animators working in, in isolation. And they're trying to set up a means of doing that. And they've asked me to do an online uh, lecture series of a couple presentations about centralized command and decentralized execution. It's sort of a premise of military operations. And that's exactly what we used to do. You're alone in a fighter jet amongst a whole bunch of other airplanes, different nations, air-to-air refuelers and whatnot, all coming together to execute a mission, all in isolation for a collective um, mission and outcome. And so that I'm speaking to that. So there's there are some very translatable uh, skills. I remember being early in this process was effectively, I was a producer, one of the producers of the Airshow TV series, and my Air Force buddies were asking me, like, what the heck do you know about producing television? I said, well, you know, as the leader of the Snowbirds, that's really what I was. It was live entertainment. I was uh, I was managing resources, people, and a creative twist. And that's producing, by the way. You just have to learn a new language, <laughs> yep. uh, new bureaucracy, and then manage all the crazy egos and film and television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm coming. I'm coming the opposite way around. I'm coming from film and television, and want to consider being a pilot now so but they do they have served me well um those tenets of leadership that you just are exposed to day in day out in the military and because you move around so often you do get exposed to different leadership styles and different leadership processes 
that uh, you pick and choose to build your own bag of leadership. And uh, and there's a lot of great things about the film industry, but one of the negative aspects of it is is poor leadership. And uh, I've seen that in many cases and and sort of an entitlement to eccentricity and ego that's unchecked by the industry itself because it's it's a results oriented industry where in the military it's it's a lot and there's obviously results but the the process is as important as results sometimes in the military and making sure that you know teams are in place doing the right things it's very important and really in film it's you're only as good as your last production and result and whether that's good or bad it sort of determines your fate and so there's all sorts of wild you know leadership styles in in film at uh, you know I'm I try to work with groups of people that I like to work with and think alike so I think to answer the the question how that's come into my world is I'm really trying to foster teams that I want to work with I'm trying to find leaders that I want to work with that uh, have inspired me in film and television and and you know find my tribe if you will and uh, and create tribes that I want to work with awesome yeah um so what are some of the projects you've worked on um I guess the aviation related ones in film and television yeah so well all manner of them it's really been interesting and as you've alluded to I've I've really focused on aviation you know my my first love if you will I've been able to translate aviation into film and television and I would say that 80% of the projects that I'm involved in are aviation related and not only because it's what I know best but I, why wouldn't I want to combine my two loves and so out of the airshow tv series you know I I got exposed to some of the other doc style um programming with Discovery Channel and had the privilege of being able to direct on some of those shows really got to understand different aspects of the industry but my my real love has been in the scripted world that's what i watch it's i i love feature films i love films about science fiction and aviation and so i uh, had the privilege of getting a you know a a visa a green card to work in the states because of special skills that i had in aviation and film and i started building a you know a little place in the world as a, an aerial specialist and i started uh, you know flying cameras making airline commercials and assisting with that and I, you know dozens of those and it's very rewarding where you're up making you know all those images you see on the commercials or the back of the seats on the monitors have been involved in most of those in the last uh, few years so it's that's really rewarding type work but then i found working with directors and helping them attain authenticity on screen for aviation because you're a pilot and all us pilots when we watch something about aviation you just slap your head and you go like oh my god i can't believe they did that you know i was just watching something recently the airplane was in a big spin and dive and they flashed to the altimeter and the altimeter's going up you know little things <laughs> yeah. like that i just it's yeah. unacceptable to a pilot right yeah. and 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 people are smart now uh this is not the 70s and 80s where you can get away with you know seeing one airplane take off and a different kind of airplane landing uh, in in the show the crowd the audiences are very intelligent now so that level of authenticity is even more important i like to say i can bring that so i've worked on uh, a number of netflix 
movies and TBS shows. And in those cases, again, I started out as the aerial advisor or the coordinator, ensuring the safety of the aerial stunts or maneuvers are effectively done safely. And, and that's something I have a, you know, a lot of background with working with the snowbirds and, and in my civilian life as an air show pilot, because it's effectively what we're doing. Um, but then more and more, the directors started sensing I had an understanding of the film work and the cinematography and the story because I've studied quite a bit of that and I have quite a bit of formal acting training as well. I understand what the objectives are, not just the f mechanics of the shots. And so more and more, the directors started saying, you know, Scratch, why don't you just direct that sequence? Take the unit, go be the second unit director and just come back and make it look pretty. And here's, here's my vision. And I've been, uh, I found that to be very rewarding. I guess the most rewarding one in recent, uh, life here is the, the Midway movie where I worked with Roland Emmerich and his team for a couple months where we were filming. And again, I started off as the aerial advisor and coordinator, bringing in a real B-25 and supervising the construction of uh, the replica airplanes that were used in the film, uh, more than that advisory role, but on set quickly, um, you know, he extended me amazing and generous um, opportunities to to actually help direct the flying sequences and work with the the A unit, the actors, and and help direct all the the insert shots and do all the B unit stuff too. So that was extremely rewarding, and that's more where I'm trying to drive my career is the the directing and creative producing, anyways, because that's uh, that's the part that bubbles up in me that wanting to be a filmmaker. And so that that most recently has been the most rewarding and developed a you know a relationship with their organization and you know hope to be able to do more of that. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about um, the air to air air to air work you've done um, with the Learjet and we see it around BC all the time flying with airliners and people are phoning up going oh there's a fighter jet with an airliner and um, but that's you guys filming up there. It is, and we almost always make the news, particularly if we're flying near Victoria, which there's some beautiful scenery in the Straits of Juan de Fuca. And so we do fly there quite a bit. We'll, certainly for the Air Canada shoots that we've done, we, we operate out of Vancouver at YVR. Otherwise, we do a lot of flying out of Washington, out of uh, Payne Field and with Boeing. So we're in the Pacific Northwest quite a bit. And I worked with, uh, with Wolf Air and the Lear 25 for a few years. And super rewarding uh, type of work where you're actually, you're flying the camera effectively. You, you fly the camera, which has limited ability to articulate and zoom. And so you have to fly the camera to, let's say, a 75% solution. And then the, the camera operator, or director of photography, they take the shot from ideally a good shot to a great shot. And it's an interesting relationship between you as the pilot and the camera operator. You almost have to start thinking alike. And, you know, I'm not uh, the most experienced person in the world at doing this, but I've come to enjoy it quite a bit. But it is funny when we do fly around the Fraser Valley and, and Victoria, there's always some sort of news report that fighter jet escorting, da -da -da, <laughs> the little Learjet looks like a fighter and it, the Lear started as a fighter design, right? So that's, uh, that's kind of fun. I even received some, I felt the buzz in my pocket. Uh, the, the co-captain was flying and we were, he was 
flying the jet and I was felt my text going off in my pocket as we're coming into YVR and it was a friend of mine saying, Hey, I see a, uh, you know, a, a fighter jet with a, with an airliner. Yeah. Would you know anything about that? And I, after I land, I go, actually, that was me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was there, so that's kind of fun. Nice. Yeah. This, I, this interview could go for a long time, so I'm sure we're going to have you back on at some point, mm. but, um, I wanted to end with getting you to tell a story. You've had a few incidents with animals on board, uh, but I heard there's a spider story. That, yes, uh, the infamous spider story. This is, uh, and I'm I'm happy to tell it again for sure. And it's it's actually a really important story, even though it's uh, was sort of terrifying to me at the time. I'm not a big spider fan, but I was leading the snowbirds in my first year as lead, and we were down in a place called Tucumcari, New Mexico which is in the middle of nowhere, old, on the old highway and sort of a bit of a ghost town now. But they have this air show every year and they did it midweek. And often we would do a weekend show at a big show and then traveling to another destination, we would do a Wednesday night show at a smaller location. And often those shows built their shows around our schedule to be able to do that, to have a small show with a, with a military jet team was, you know, was, uh, it was worth doing that for it brought the people in. And this is also a place in in the world where is on the tarantula migration route, which I didn't know about. And so we were coming in, we would break up into our three groups of three to land. We'd arrive at nine, break up three groups of three. And as I was leading the first group in, I could see this wild west town, all these tumbleweeds going across the runway. And I quickly realized as I was about to flare that they weren't tumbleweeds they were actually spiders running around the runway changing directions and it was absolutely horrific to me because i was hitting them and you could feel them um translating through the gear and the wheels it was like tuck, 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 hitting these tarantulas it's tarantulas by strikes and the land on the rollout well the next the next day this was a tuesday the wednesday we went to go do our show and i was about a third the way into the routine leading one of the most complicated maneuvers in the formation which was the five plane line abreast roll very very difficult to fly for the wingman and very difficult to lead because you just have to be perfectly on your numbers your energy your pitch attitudes and the rest of it and no kidding as i pulled up and i, I got to my go no go point i had to actually continue the maneuver a large spider crawled out from inside the cockpit behind my rear view mirror and i'm like oh my goodness and i i had to keep going and so i committed to the maneuver, I remember looking at this thing with one eye the whole time, because I'm not a spider fan. And on the backside of the the maneuver, the G starts coming on. As it turns out, the holding power of a big spider is about 3G, and it promptly fell onto my lap. And uh, there was a subsequent maneuver, a loop that was supposed to occur with that, but I, I called relaxing, and the guys didn't know what was going on in my wing and I got them to spread it out a little bit and I, they saw it said they saw me swatting away at my thigh and I missed this thing moved I missed again and then I connected and I looked down and there were just three legs on my really tight thigh at that point and I looked and I went through this irrational process of thinking you know what are the chances a five-legged spider's gonna be able to crawl up and bite me in the throat I'm like ah, I don't think so so I continue with the maneuver or the, the show and but I was really freaked out 
and uh, the guys joked afterwards because I said, oh, yeah, I had this thing go on. And they're like, that's unbelievable. I said, yeah, but I was really impressed how I was able to smoothly come out of that first first roll. And they all looked at each other. Oh, that wasn't smooth at all. Like, so I was <laughs> rocking away. But, you know, the, the, the interesting tale about all that was, and I do like to pass this message on, is that a few weeks earlier we'd received a bulletin through sort of the NATO flight safety network that a United States fighter jet had crashed in Afghanistan. And in the wreckage they found what they thought was a, a camel spider in the cockpit. And they figured the pilot was distracted by that and flew into the ground low level. And it's interesting during that maneuver, because I had just read that, that that thought had popped into my head a couple of times. And I remember actively saying to myself, focus, fly the mission, fly the maneuver. You have to fly first. I don't know if that knowledge or that little spark of focus um, made the difference, but it made a difference in the execution of that maneuver. So I often use that story to say the, you know, in aviation, one thing, going back to that previous comment, that I think the military does really well is they disseminate the information, the safety information, really well. And I think in the in my experience so far in the civilian world, it's not as well disseminated that flight safety culture and network of information and I, mean, I look at the case of me leading the snowbirds with a big spider in there i think it made a difference the fact that that bulletin made it to me before i had my incident so i say all of us pilots are obligated to share our stories i guess that's why we're here and it's the old aviate navigate communicate absolutely first, first thing you do is aviate yeah aviate yeah. navigate communicate kill the spider <laughs> i'll add a fourth <laughs> Awesome. Well, I will uh, leave it at that for this episode. Um, I'd love to have you back on at some point. That would be my great. pleasure. And it's a great speaking, great speaking to you today. Yeah, likewise. So. Let's talk soon. Thanks to Scratch for sitting down with us and to you for listening in. If you'd like to hear a little more from Scratch, I've got a bonus episode available where he answers some great listener-submitted questions including how snowbird displays are created each year and what happens when there's turbulence while you're in tight formation. It's available for free at patreon.com slash flyingbc. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. I know a lot of us are going through some trying times these days, but if you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia. And until next time, stay home, stay healthy, and let's hope we can all get back to flying more again soon. Flying BC is a project of Formula Photographic.